Psalm 62. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master, according to the Jedifin, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing to us on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you. We thank you that you have not, you have not left us in the dark to grope around, uh, to try to figure out on our own who you are, what you are like, and, and especially the way of salvation from our sin through faith in Christ alone. And we ask uh, once again today that you would teach us your word by your spirit, that you'd move in us, work in us by your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, let it be uh, by your will that we not be, uh, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, you might, you might remember that this past Sunday, this past Lord's Day, uh, was Reformation Sunday. We have a lot of, uh, if you follow a church calendar, there's all kinds of Sundays for different things. Uh, and Reformation Sunday is that uh, Sunday closest to the date that we commonly traditionally mark as the beginning of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. It was on October 31st in 1517, 501 years ago now, that Martin Luther at the time, an Augustinian monk, what did he do? He did not go trick-or-treating on that date. He, he took a hammer and a nail and these uh, 95, so-called 95 theses uh, or points of dispute or, or, or uh, debate and nailed them, uh, tradition says, to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, this was the spark that, that ignited the Reformation itself. Um, this was, uh, we talk in today's Internet age about something going viral where these 95 theses of Martin Luther that he just wanted to have a debate, well, they suddenly got translated into the common tongue into German and were spread all over Germany and other parts of, of Europe, and it, it was the first viral thing, and God used that uh, to spread the, the gospel once again. You might know that one of the things, you know, we, we talk about many different things when you talk about the Reformation. If I were to ask you to blurt out what you think of when you think of the Reformation, maybe you think Luther, maybe you think Calvin, maybe you think... Rightly, justification by faith alone, 
but you might know that uh, there are these these things called the five solas of the Reformation. Now, we, whenever you talk about the Reformation, we end up throwing Latin words around. Sola, the Latin word sola, just means alone or only. So it would sound funny in English to say the five onlys of the Reformation. So we want to sound intelligent, so we say the five solas, as if we all know Latin. Well, they are as, as follows. The five solas are sola scriptura, which is scripture alone as the sole authority for faith and practice. And in the context of the Reformation, that means not the words of the Pope, not any other book. Uh, some some uh, churches and other religions use a different book or add an additional book. Uh, we don't hold to that. Scripture alone. Solus Christus, or salvation by Christ alone. That means not Christ plus anything. Not Christ plus my own good works or any such thing. If you're going to be saved, it's by Christ alone, and that's it. Sola gratia, or, or salvation by grace alone. Grace alone, not grace plus works, not grace plus me doing my part. Sola fide, salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not faith plus works, as many would say. Soli deo gloria, that's the last and maybe the most important one. It's the result of the other four. And that is the glory goes to God alone for our salvation. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer in Christ and are saved from your sin, every last shred of the credit and glory for it goes to whom? God. Why? Because God did that. God didn't do you know his part and you did your part. If you're ever going to be saved from your sin, it's going to be by God alone doing all of the work by his grace. Well, these solas were in some way the primary offense of the Reformation to many, especially those who were in power of the Roman Catholic Church, but elsewhere as well. If you think about it, that one little word, remove the sola or the solas from those things, and you really, you really remove the offense of the entire Reformation. Remove the solas and you have no Reformation. Everyone would have just, all of Europe would have just shrugged their shoulders. The Roman Catholic Church would have shrugged. They might have still put some folks to death, but they would have shrugged their shoulders because it wouldn't have made much difference. You remove those solas, you remove the effectiveness and power of the Reformation and the gospel that was reawakened uh, in that uh, as well. After all, think about it. No self-respecting, professing Christian, whether they be a Roman Catholic or even a nominal Christian, nominal evangelical, whatever hope, whatever imagine... Uh, to object or protest to the idea that Scripture is authoritative for faith and practice. It's when you say it's the only authority for faith and practice, uh, that's, that's fighting words when you add that one little word only or alone. When you say Scripture alone is the ultimate and final authority for faith and practice, that's for what we believe and how we are to live, then what are you doing when you say that? You're denying explicitly that anything else can be that standard. You're denying that anything else can be on par with that standard. And so you say that tradition of the church, the words, decisions, or teachings of the papacy, any other book, that you're you're saying none of those things carry the weight and authority of Scripture, much less anything being over Scripture. You are then confessing that it's it's the Word of God alone that settles all debates and commands our faith and our obedience to its commandments, its laws. This is, this is the final authority, God's word. You can take that same logic. I won't go through each one of the five solas and do that this morning, but you can take that very same log- logic and apply it to all five of those solas as well. Everybody likes to talk about grace, don't they? 
Everybody likes to talk about grace. Everybody loves to sing about grace. But when you say it's by grace alone that a sinner is saved, what are you doing? You're removing all place for our works in our justification before a holy God. You're removing all part, uh, all part or place for boasting in our own salvation. We like to boast. On our own, outside of Christ, even those of us who have known the Lord for a long time, our bent is to boast. We want to be able to say that, well, I'm going to be in heaven because I'm a good boy or girl. I go to church. I put money in the plate. I do X, Y, and Z. Sure, God does you know, his part. He gives me some grace, but I make up the rest. Or he gives me grace so that I can do my part. We like to sneak in our own merits, our own boasting and such things. So it's, I think it's fitting this morning that in the providence of God, not in my plan or, or things like that, that we come to look at Psalm 62 on this first Sunday of the month. We've been going through the Psalms every first Sunday uh, for most of the time. And why do I say this is a fitting Psalm? Psalm 62 is a sola Psalm. Psalm 62 is a sola Psalm. No less than six times in these 12 verses you find uh, the Hebrew word for only or alone. Now it's variously translated in throughout the Psalm. It doesn't jump off the page in every case. But the same word that, that is translated alone or only is used six times in this brief psalm. And this psalm of David is a psalm about trusting in God. And what's the word? Alone. That's what Psalm 62 is all about, trusting in God alone. Our outline is uh, simple. It's from the text itself. We're going to look at, Lord willing, three different things in this psalm. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is David's confession David's confession that he trusted in God alone, verses 1 through 4. The second thing we're going to see uh, by God's grace is David's counsel. First his confession, then his counsel. And what is his counsel? To trust in God alone. And the last thing we're going to see in verses um, verses 9 through 12, we're going to see David's case. David's case for trusting in God alone. In other words, why he trusted God alone and why he he counsels you and I to do the same. So let's look at the first thing that that, that we see in our text in verses 1 through 4, David's confession that he trusted in God alone. Here this is what David confesses throughout the psalm, that he, he trusts in the Lord alone. The Lord alone as his rock, his salvation, his fortress. Look at verses 1 through 2. David there says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. You know, it's one thing to say that you trust in God. Lots of people say that. It's it's, it's one thing to say that you trust in God, but it's quite another to say that you trust in God alone. That your ultimate trust is in God alone. That's what uh, David confesses. That one little word alone or only makes all the difference, doesn't it? It really does change everything. David didn't put his trust or hope in anything ultimately but his God. And notice one of, you know, we talk about little words making a lot of difference. Notice one other little word he throws in here throughout these verses. Look how many times he adds the little simple word my in these verses and throughout the psalm. Charles Spurgeon observes this. He says, he writes, observe how the psalmist, David, observe how the psalmist brands his own initials upon every name which he rejoicingly gives to his God. My expectation, my rock, my salvation, my glory, my strength, 
my refuge. He is not content to know that the Lord is all these things. He acts faith towards him and lays claim to him under every character. You get what he's saying? He's, he's saying, he doesn't just say that, that God is a rock or is the rock. He says God is, he alone is my rock. He doesn't just say that the Lord is, is salvation. He says the Lord is whose salvation? His own. He doesn't just say God is a fortress. He says God is what? My fortress. That's the difference between Christianity and religion. False religion. If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, you can add the word my to all those things when you talk about God. He's not just God. He's who's God? He's your God and he's my God by his grace. And so this morning I ask, do you, sitting here this morning, do you trust the Lord alone as your rock? Is God your salvation? Is the Lord your fortress? Or do you trust in him and also try to place your trust in other people, in your possessions, your attainments, and even your own actions and whatnot in life? Do you, do you place your trust in God but hedge your bets? Do you place your safety and security in this life and in the next, partly in God and partly in yourself or someone else or some other such thing? And notice in verses 3 through 4, David gives us kind of a glimpse of the attacks of his enemies that lay behind this psalm. He doesn't spend a lot of time on them. The the opening, uh, the title of the psalm doesn't tell us much about what he may have been going through, but verses 3 to 4 He says, he kind of addresses his attackers, his persecutors. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall or a tottering fence, they only, there's that word only again, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they what? They curse. This is not the same thing the Lord Jesus Christ went through. From the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, they would say, you know, good teacher. They would say good things, but inwardly they hated him and they plotted his death. To David's enemies, he seemed like a high wall. You ever have a wall that's kind of leaning, it's ready to fall over? Don't look at the fence at our house, behind our house. It's it's leaning over. It looks like it could fall over at any moment. To to his enemies, he looked like a very worn down fence. And all they would have to do was one more push And it would fall over. And they sought to give him a little nudge. And how did David's enemies seek to give him a little nudge and knock him all the way over? Falsehood and deception. But they were cowards. What did they do? To his face, they said good things. But in their heart, they said things. They cursed him inwardly. Here we see a hint, I think, of why David put his trust in no man but in God alone. We have a bad habit, us us people of being uh, duplicitous, of being fake, of saying one thing and meaning another in our hearts. Regardless of how lofty a position somebody may have had, David was not going to trust in them. He was going to trust in God alone. He trusted in God alone to be his rock and his fortress, even against enemies like these. That's not easy. It's easy to say that. It's hard to do that, isn't it? David trusted that his God, his rock, his fortress, his salvation, his God saw all things. His God knew all things. And so David knew that his God could be trusted with his life and with his kingdom and that no wicked slander, no no plot against him could ever fool God. Someone can slander David all they want. Someone can slander you and I all they want, uh, but they can't slander and fool God about David or about you. 
Even more than that, as David says in the last, the very last verse of the psalm, where he says, For you will render to a man according to his work. David trusted God's just judgment. That no, no fake, slanderous person could ever have their case against David stand. God would make and is going to make all things right one day. He's going to judge the wicked and vindicate his people in the day of judgment. According to what? According to our actions. You're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, but how, how does God, how is it made manifest who God's people are? By our profession of faith and by how you live. Jesus separates the sheep and the goats based on what? By what we do. You're not saved by what you do. You're not justified by what you do. But it is the manifestation of the faith that you have. It's by faith that we do all these things that you read of, for instance, in in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, so-and-so did this. It shows our faith. Well, that brings us to the second thing in our text, and that's David's counsel. David's counsel. And what's his counsel? Trust in God alone. First he confesses his faith, I trust in God alone, he's my salvation, my fortress. And now he gives us his counsel in verses 5 through 7. Look there, he writes, For God alone, there it is again, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only, there it is again, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Let me ask you a quick question. I'll see if you caught this in the text. Whom does David counsel first to trust in God alone? David. He counsels himself first to trust in God alone. Can you identify with that? Do sometimes do we not need to remind ourselves to trust in God before we even think about reminding someone else to trust in Him? David trusted in God alone. It's what he told us in verse 1. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. But then in verse 5, what does he say? For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He, He has to counsel himself, remind himself to continue trusting in God alone. Because what happens? Our circumstances very often tempt us to stop trusting in God alone. And David's no exception to that rule, and neither are you and neither am I. We all need to counsel ourselves and each other as well in that. This reminds me a little bit of that the man, that father who came to Jesus in Mark 9.24, who sought Jesus' help for his son, and, and he cried out to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's, that's David's cry here. I'm trusting in you alone, help me trust in you alone. Self, trust in God in God alone. Is that not your prayer at times as well, that you believe that you do trust the Lord, but that you don't even, if I can put it this way, you don't even trust your own ability to trust in the Lord on your own. You need God's help even to do that. You need God's grace even to trust the Lord alone, even to do that. Now notice the repetition here in this brief psalm. He repeats, it's just about word for word what he said in verse 1. He repeats with some small Alteration in verses 5 through 6. What's he doing? Is it just for poetic style? We often think that's all it is. You know, a lot of repetition in music. We sing the same things over and over again because you have to fill the space. Is that what David, is David filling space here? He got tired of writing and just repeats himself because he couldn't think. No. Uh, he repeats these things nearly word for word. And what's he doing? He's rehearsing to himself and to us, the reader, about the power and trustworthiness of 
God of the Lord, that it was the Lord alone who was his hope, his rock, his salvation, his fortress, his mighty rock, and his refuge. See here how you and I need to know God. You, you could argue that's, that's our greatest need. We need to know God better. We need to learn to know God better, to know Him, to prove Him, to strive to know Him better and remind ourselves of the great truth of His attributes and perfections. We need to know God better. Brothers and sisters, we need to know our God. We need to make it our business to know our God better. And where do you find that you learn about God? Where has He revealed Himself? Primarily in His Word is where He's revealed Himself as what He is to us as our Creator, our Sustainer, our Redeemer, and our Friend. We need to make it our business to know God better. When we come here on Sunday mornings, that's one of the things we should be trying to do. We look into His Word to know God better, to remind ourselves about who He is and what He has done for our salvation. Is that the, is it the aim of your life to know God? To know God better? Jesus tells us plainly that knowing God is eternal life. John 17, verse 3 says, Jesus says, And this is eternal life. What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is the very definition of eternal life. It's what makes eternal life eternal life and not just eternal existence. Eternal life is knowing God. And it starts now. It doesn't just start later. If you're a believer, you have eternal life starting now. You're learning to know God now. You'll know him more when you see Christ as he is. In this psalm, David doesn't just counsel himself to trust in God alone, but he also thankfully counsels you and I to do the same. Look at verse 8. He addresses us, the reader. He says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for whom? Us. For us, now, this kind of trust in God and, and protection from uh, by God from His enemies is not just something that a king gets to enjoy like David. You and I might say, "Well, he's David; he's the man after God's own heart. He was the king of Israel. He was the, you know, the the the, the guy. The, the Christ was to come from his line. Was to be his greater his greater son. He was a type of Christ himself as the king of God's." of God's people. But David doesn't say that at all. David counsels us and says that God is a refuge for us. David would have you and I to know that there is mercy and grace to be had from the Lord for every sinner who repents and believes in Christ alone for salvation. God's grace is not just for kings. God's protection is not just for his kings. Trust the Lord and trust the Lord alone. And what does he say there in verse 8? Trust in him at all times. Trust in God alone and trust in God always. Pour out your heart before him in prayer, David says. Seek your refuge in the Lord alone and you will never find him lacking. Why? Because David says there in verse 8, God is a refuge for us. How do you seek refuge in God? Well, David tells you. Part of what you do is, a a big part of what that means is praying. Seeking God's face, seeking him and acknowledging him as our only refuge and salvation. Well, that brings us to the third stanza, so to speak, of the psalm. And the third point, David's case for trusting God alone. We've seen his confession. We've seen his counsel. Verses 9 through 12, we see David's case for trusting in God alone. A part of his exhortation is encouragement to you and I to trust the Lord alone. Uh, what does he do? He, in part, as part of doing that, he shows us that he's the only one worthy of that trust. 
that no one and no thing else is worthy of such trust. Look at verses 9 through 10. He says, those of low estate are but, that's actually the word only again, those of low estate are, are but or only a breath. Those of high estate, important people, right? Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. He's picturing a scale where you put one thing on each side and you see what, what balances out. He's, he says, in the balances, which way do they go? They go up. If you put something that has any weight, what happens to the scale? It goes down. They, they go up. They are together. That's men of low estate and men of high estate. They are together lighter than a breath. They're lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He doesn't say, oh, don't have money, don't have riches, don't buy all, you know, take a vow of poverty, get rid of everything you have, run from, you know. But what he does say is, if God does bless you financially, with prosperity, what do you not do? You don't trust your money. You don't trust in riches if they increase. No one but God is worthy of our soul trust. No one but God is worthy of your soul trust. No man can ever be the rock of your salvation. No man but Christ. And why not? Because all men, men of high estate or low estate, are but a breath or a delusion. A delusion. What does that mean? They cannot save. They have no weight to them. They're lighter than a breath. Trusting in other people as your rock it's kind of like being a ship tossed and turned in a storm at sea and the ship's captain seeking to use a helium balloon for an anchor. I've got this guy's watch. Now we're saved. That, that's what trusting in a person to be your rock and salvation is like. I can't help but think of the upcoming midterm elections this week. Many people, even many sincere, well-meaning believers in Christ, act as if uh, politicians or elected officials on either side of the aisle are worthy of your trust as our rock and our refuge. That they're the saviors. They're going to fix everything. They're the one you have to pin your hope on. If you don't vote for them, everything's going to fall apart. The whole world's going to come to an end because they're the saviors. I say that's, brothers and sisters, that's, that's foolishness to believe that. Foolishness. Nothing wrong with politics. Nothing wrong with politics per se. Nothing wrong with voting. Nothing wrong with getting involved in politics. I hope you vote. I hope you vote according to your conscience. I hope you vote according to a conscience that is enlightened by Scripture and not by someone's lies and false promises. Politics matters, but those people are not your saviors. They too will show themselves to be but a breath and a delusion if you pin all your hopes on them for one simple reason. They're not God. They're not the devil incarnate either, but they're not God. They cannot save. They are incapable of that because they are not God. Not only that, but David says we're not to set our hopes on. This might sound strange to you when I read it. You might have thought, what is he saying? Don't set your hopes on extortion or robbery. Why does David say that? It seems like an odd thing for him to say. Like most of us would say, well, of course not. Why would I possibly put my hopes in extortion or or robbery? Well, I think we're not we're giving ourselves too much benefit of the doubt if that's what we think, because what do you seek to gain by extortion or robbery? Money, possessions, things that you think your security is in, and so 
You fudge on things. You cheat on things. You try to get ahead by any means possible because what does that show? If that's what you do, it shows that you're really trusting in money and not in God. Nothing wrong with, David says, if riches increase, fine. Just don't don't set your heart on them. If you, if you set your hopes on extortion or robbery, it's because you're seeking wealth or riches by them. And what you're doing if you do that is making an idol out of money. You're trying to serve God and money. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6.24? He says, no one, no one, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and mammon or money. You cannot serve God and money. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve God and serve money at the same time. If you do so, who are you really serving? When push comes to shove, you will find that you are serving money rather than God. If you make all your decisions, all your important life decisions based on... Money's important, don't get me wrong. But if you make all your decisions in life based upon how it will affect your bottom line... I have bad news for you. You are serving or trying to serve a bad master. You're serving money and not God. And if you're serving money and not God, whom or what are you ultimately trusting? You're trusting your money rather than God. That's why David adds there in verse 10, if if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Where should your heart be set? Easier said than done. God. Our hearts must rather be set on God. Earthly riches will let you down when you need them the most. Other people will ultimately let you down when you need them the most if you rely upon them or trust in them as your rock and your salvation. And so here in the psalm, David tells you and I of the folly of trusting in anything else or anyone else alongside of or in place of God. To trust in anything else alongside of God is really not to trust God at all. It's to hedge your bet. It's to say, I trust God, but I better keep a hold of this. This person, this thing, this whatever. It means you're really ultimately trusting in that thing or person rather than God. Why is it that David could say all this? Why is it that David can trust in God alone and counsel you and I to do the same? To trust in God as our rock and our salvation? Why can he do that? He tells us in verses 11 through 12 where he writes the following. He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. You know, sometimes we, we use language like this. Uh, someone much wiser than me once said, I've, I've learned one thing in this life, that there's a God and I'm not him. Uh, I think that was even in a movie at one point. Uh, David kind of has the same thing here. He says that, that he's, he's heard or been taught by God two things, that are important about this whole situation. Two things about himself that, that God had taught David about God, about him, God himself, that had led David to place his trust in God alone. What were those two things? First, that power belongs to God. Real power. Why do, why do you seek to trust in money? Why do we seek to trust in politicians or people of high estate? We think they have what? Power. Money is power, time is money, whatever you want to say. We we think they have power, and that's what we really want. He says power belongs to God. God had taught him that. The almighty power of God teaches us that God can do all things and that nothing shall be impossible 
with God. What does that mean? It means that God is able to help you in time of need. He's able, to say the least, to help you in time of need. What's the second thing that God taught or revealed to David about himself? That steadfast love or mercy belongs to God as well. There's a lot more to God than those two things, but David says those two things make me trust in God alone as my rock. That God, power belongs to him and steadfast love belongs to him as well. So not only is God able to help us in time of need, he's also what? Willing to help us in time of need because of his steadfast love. That's his covenant love, his unbreakable love in Christ, his mercy in Christ. Where do you and I find the mercy and might of God at work for our salvation? Primarily, first and foremost, we find those things on the cross of Christ where the Almighty Son of God took on flesh and laid down his life as a propitiation, a sacrifice, a substitution in our place where he died for our sins in order to reconcile you and I to God. The might and mercy that if you want to see the greatest uh, vision of it, it's in the cross of Christ. That's why he is our rock, our refuge, and our salvation. The mercy and might of God are the basis, they are the basis for our confidence or trust in the Lord. And so the mercy and might of God, among other things, should be our consideration, should be our meditation, should be in our thoughts. They should be in our thoughts, they should be in our words, they should be on our lips in prayer, they should be in our conversations to each other, and they should even be in our psalms. You might uh, might remember we just sang a bunch of things this morning, a bunch of great classic Christian hymns. But we sang as our second hymn this morning, the old classic hymn by Reginald Haber, Holy, Holy, Holy. And you sang it twice, even if you didn't remember it. Holy, 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 Merciful and Mighty. God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. Merciful and Mighty. That's Psalm 62. That's what David's talking about long before that hymn was written, that power belongs to God, mighty, and that mercy or steadfast love belongs to God to God the Lord alone and no one else and nothing else is merciful and mighty and so the Lord alone is the one who is only worthy of our trust and hope may the Lord Jesus Christ work in you and I by his spirit that he might incline our hearts more and more to trust in him alone to turn our backs on the vain things that offer salvation but cannot deliver that we might renounce all faith and confidence in other things even other people as our rock in our salvation, and may he turn the hearts of any here this morning that don't yet know him, that are still placing maybe your faith and confidence in other things, that you might turn to Christ by faith and see him as your rock and your salvation alone. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that in so many places, in so many ways, this same message uh, rings out and reminds us again and again Uh, that only you are worthy of our praise, our trust, uh, and our devotion. Only you are the one who is our Savior, our refuge, our rock, and our Redeemer. That, that only you, uh, only you, to, to you belongs the power and the mercy that we need for salvation. Not only from our sins, but from all things that vex us in this life. And so we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit. Give us grace by your Spirit. And, and the reminders of your word that we might trust in you alone for all things, especially for our salvation, that we might not trust in our own works as if that could ever stand before your, your judgment, 
And you judge us according to our works. Even the last verse of the psalm reminds us of your judgment is according to our deeds. Uh, may we never, never be deluded enough to, to try to, to trust in our own deeds to stand before you on that day. Give us grace to look to Christ, to flee to him, to seek him as our solid rock upon which we stand. And all other ground is sinking sand, even as we sang this morning. Lord, we pray that if anybody here this morning is still in their sins and is still clinging to hope in other things, whether it be their own attainments, their own possessions, or anything else, that you might open their eyes even this morning, grant them repentance and faith, that they might look to Christ alone for salvation, and they might give you all the glory for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.